I'm going to introduce Susan King. Then Ken's going to present. We'll do Q&A, and we should be done within an hour. So where are you, Susan? There she is. Okay, so Susan is just going to give us like a five-minute story about rethinking her faith path. And I, I can't sing Susan's praises enough, so I'm excited to hear her share. I don't know, Caroline. <laughs> Wait till you hear what I have to say. I don't know. So good, good afternoon, I guess, everyone. First, I want to say thanks for doing this, Ken. I think this is an incredibly important uh, concept and subject to come together and talk about because it doesn't get talked about enough. And what it is that's going to happen feels to me like this is the most natural process um, of life that is deeply embedded in our journey into becoming who we are. And yet the stages of that we go through to undo what we thought we knew really well in order to make space to learn something else and new. And where that goes is not acknowledged enough is not supported enough uh, and is not understood enough. So to me, I, this is really exciting that we're doing this work. It was this process um, as I've experienced it in numerous times in my life that literally drove me to do the work that I do. And when I had the first time I went through the process of going in my language would be everything seems to be in order and then something comes along to disorder it a new idea comes in a new concept a way of saying no enough I can't do that anymore uh, throws it into to disorganization and then it has to reorder again oftentimes at least for me in my life they've been pretty painful experiences they can be they can be sweet they can be very intimate and soft and beautiful as they emerge but at least for me they often come with a big jolt one of the i'll share a couple of of times and and then what emerged from from the order disorder reorder for, for me when i was young um, i was raised catholic went to catholic schools and during that time when i was going the prevailing thought was that as someone who identified as a woman would had had two roles that she could do she could become a nun or she could get married and have children that was that those are the two tracks that were available and i'd always known from the time that i was little that i was being called by god to a role of service and those are the only two roles that I knew. 
So I thought that I was going to have to, I was going to be a nun. And in the process of going through a long Ignatian retreat to discern whether or not that was the case, and if it was time to join a religious order, I had a very strong spiritual experience on that retreat and it it became absolutely clear that i was not going to be a nun and then i was thrown for a loop because now what did i do how did i be called by that which i named god and not be a nun that was it didn't it didn't make sense to me why was it that started my journey of why was it only men who got to have these these roles and it started my plunge into the exploration of patriarchy patriarchal rules and how the church was organized around a patriarchal struggle i mean structure and i ended up leaving religion or practicing religion for about a decade as as a result of this process but in that disorganization in that anger in that frustration in that leaving i discovered some central aspects and important things in my life it drove me back to school which is what led me to literally get a get a degree in spiritual discernment and spiritual psychology to understand why how this works what is this what was i experiencing and why why, when I tried to talk about it, did it seem to fall on so many deaf ears? So that was a great piece of the journey. And I know the time is, is short, so I'll, I'll just stop there with saying that it has been these kinds of experiences in my life that let me know that if I just stay with it and stay in the tr in the struggle that some whatever comes at the end will be much more will be much bigger and much more affirming than i knew previously and i'll end by, by saying there's a gospel by thomas everyone knows thomas he was the guy who had to stick his he said he wasn't going to believe until he could stick his hands inside of jesus's wounds well, he took his ministry down into India and in the southern Southeast Asian regions. And he has a gospel. And the very first saying in the gospel says, when you seek, you will find. When you find, you will experience trouble. That trouble will lead you to wonder. That wonder will lead to sovereignty, which means a central, a more knowing of yourself. And the sovereignty will lead to rest. And the rest will lead to seeking. And the seeking will lead to finding. And it keeps going. That's the whole central tenet. So this process that we're going to be talking about is a central core part of who we are as people and always have been so thanks i'll turn it over to you ken all right thank you susan if um if you'd like to have more contact with susan she comes to tea time every tuesday except the second tuesday 
at 3 p.m. So we have a little a little group. So just send me an email and I'll put you on the tea time list and you get to hang out with Susan a little bit more. Anyway, so this this class is including four distinct offerings over four monthly sessions. So it will be January, February, March, and April. For those of us in this process of rethinking significant aspects of possibly previously held faith perspectives. So we we all, in a sense, come in a state of dynamic tension with previously held beliefs. We may know what we don't believe anymore, and we're in the process of articulating what we do. We, we may share some common experiences with uh, 35 or so of us on this um, on this Zoom time, but each path is also very much its own. You know, this process can be, it can be gentle, organic, uh, like a growing experience. My wife, Julia, is, a, is an Episcopal priest and, and she had a very gentle, organic transition in uh, faith perspectives over her lifetime, just like a normal growth process, or it can be deeply, deeply distressing. I would guess that there are some here today who have experienced religious trauma that includes uh, symptoms of PTSD. Maybe it's hard to even get into a church service of any kind without feeling hypervigilant or anxious or uh, distress. So we really want to be mindful of, of that diversity in these, in these sessions. Uh, there's no one size fits all here. Actually, I do want to encourage you, if you'd like to weigh in on chat as I'm speaking. It's just, it's fun to hear, hear from people, just responses. Um, and I think it's good for the group to be able to see the diversity of experience and thought. So feel free to, if you're a chat person and you'd like to weigh in, go right ahead. So why is this process such a big deal for so many of us? Well, the word uh, religion is from the Latin legare, meaning connections. Think of ligaments, connective tissue. So religion involves forging connections um, with the divine, within ourselves, with others, the wider world. So religion, faith, spirituality, touches on all aspects of our humanity, uh, relationships, politics, ethics, identity, community, meaning, purpose, birth, life, death, afterlife, sexuality, how we manage anxiety, depression, how we regulate our mood during the day. So when we undergo major transitions in our faith perspectives, it can be really unsettling. It's not just an intellectual process, it's a deeply emotional one. And depending on our background, it can actually impact our core relationships. Someone going through this, it can strain your relationship with a partner, a spouse, with family members, you're like your, your standing in your family system, your sense of belonging in a spiritual community. So reassessing major matters of Christian belief, there I would think there is like four or five core beliefs and issues that are kind of rocking the Christian world today. I would say views on the afterlife, especially the doctrine of hell, approaches to scripture, uh, matters of gender and sexuality, and, and that is you know well beyond LGBTQ uh, concerns. And in the U.S. context, certainly how Christianity has cooperated with, been infected by, and resisted white supremacy. These are all like big, big issues. I wanted to keep this to four sessions for starters this class. So we'll, uh, in our next session, we'll cover hell in the following session. So hell will be February 
uh, approaches to scripture will be in March, and then sexuality, how, how early Christianity was infected with some very toxic perspectives on sexuality and, and uh, gender as well. Uh, we'll cover those over the next three sessions. Each session will cover one of those. Um, but today is more about process. Uh, I'll offer some tools for locating ourselves in this, this reorientation path that many of us are on. I easily get disoriented. I've been going to the same shopping mall for decades here in the Ann Arbor area. Um, it's just laid out crazy. Uh, I know that I want to go to the Apple store. I know I'm somewhere. I don't know how to get from here to there. I always look for the kiosk with the map and, the, you know, there's a little arrow on the map. You are here. Like that's the first step in getting oriented is locating yourself in a broader space. So the first uh, little little handy uh, tool is a simple quadrant uh, to get our bearings on the Christian landscape. This was developed by uh, Phyllis Tickle, who was the founding religion editor at Publishers Weekly. So she actually served as, in a sense, the foremost secular expert on American uh, religion and Christianity in particular until her death in 2015. She was also a closet mystic, which uh, was uh, pretty much unknown by most people. So there are, well, I don't know, over 30,000 denominations and counting in the Christian tradition. But in a very simplified form, these can be categorized into four major subgroups. And I think um, Caroline is going to try to put these, uh, the graphic up on the up on the screen here so you can take a look at that. Maybe we could get the speaker view for that so you can see the, see the graphic. So on the upper left corner, you see the liturgical uh, section of the quadrant. So the liturgical churches would be uh, any, any church um, institution or, or system where the uh, proper conduct of the liturgy is centrally important. So Roman Catholic, Episcopal, some Lutheran churches, Eastern Orthodox churches. Yeah, they have their controversies about a lot of doctrines and teachings, but what really uh, rocks their world is when there's a when there's a dispute over the correct, you know, approach to the liturgy or their big revisions in the liturgy. So the liturgical section. Over to the right there on the top is the social justice section. So these would be the churches uh, that would regard social justice as central to the to the gospel. The African-American church tradition, very much a social justice uh, tradition. The, these, these were the churches that really fueled the civil rights movement of the uh, of the 20th century. The Quakers, the, the Mennonites, the anti-war pacifist traditions. These are the churches where they're, you know, activists on alleviation of poverty, economic justice, environmental justice. These concerns is considered very much a part of the identity of this of the church um, system. Over to the left lower is the evangelical quadrant. Or you could call it the evangelical fundamentalist quadrant. So this is the sector that where um, there's a very narrow view of scripture as every statement of scripture is absolutely true. There's no errors properly understood to be found in scripture. There's no real significant disagreements within scripture. You can say the Bible says there is um, the idea of conversion. Everyone needs to be converted to faith in Jesus, the born again experience. 
you know, you develop a testimony, there's a before, there's an after. Um, that's the evangelical fundamentalist uh, quadrant. And then there's the renewalist over there on the right uh, lower. This would, this would be like a, a version of evangelical, but with a, a real central emphasis on the Holy Spirit and emotion and expressive worship and spiritual gifts and praying for physical healing and expecting uh, miraculous divine interventions. That is actually the, the fastest growing uh, segment in the world probably the fastest growing of any religious tradition is the Pentecostal charismatics uh, segment around the world, not so much here in the United States. Now, um, you know, back, back 50 years ago, each of these uh, church traditions were kind of in their own silo, but with the rise of the internet, um, there's been a lot more uh, cross-pollinization. So you have a lot of border blending indicated by the darker section there. So you have liturgical churches that are into social justice or view social justice suspiciously. You have charismatic churches, renewalist type churches in the liturgical sector sometimes. You have evangelicals being uh, influenced by the Pentecostal charismatic movement or dabbling in social justice and maybe a limited set of, of issues. So you've got a lot of border blending going on. And then another feature of this quadrant is uh, what Phyllis Dickel called uh, the corner dwellers, um, those dotted lines there. In each of these sectors, there are those who are like purity buffs, you know, like our way or the highway. This is the only uh, authentic version of Christianity. Often uh, corner dwellers will have a lot of disputes within their sector. Like, you know, this is the way to do the liturgical thing and others, other liturgical churches are all off base, etc. So corner dwelling is a, is a big phenomenon too. So these are very different uh, dynamics, aren't they? Border blending is one, corner dwelling is another. So I think that, that gives you, if you can take the, uh, take the graphic off now, that'd be great. Um, this gives you a, a way to kind of locate yourself on the on the Christian landscape. You know, many of us probably have stories. Well, I started off Catholic, and then I, you know, went to an evangelical uh, uh, youth ministry, and and now I'm more into social justice. And you kind of trace your spiritual path on this landscape. In general, I would say reth the rethinking faith process can be more distressing initially if we were shaped in like the more conservative and corner dwelling sectors of this landscape where, where certainty and clarity was emphasized. When you, when you have a perspective that certainty is possible and clarity is on everything is absolutely necessary, when it's broken, it's extremely uh, distressing at first. So that's one way to locate ourselves on the reorienting faith path. Another is to consider uh, various developmental stage theories. So humans develop over time. And what does that look like in matters of faith, belief, spiritual practices, and spiritual communities? Um, Richard Rohr, who is a well-known Catholic contemplative, a Catholic priest, a progressive, I would say, Catholic priest, offers, I think, the simplest um, uh, rubric. It's uh, He's written a book called The Second Half of Life, and the idea is the first half of life 
uh, and the second half of life can be very different. You, know, you can look up his book. He's got podcasts. If you just Google Richard Rohr and second half of life, it'll pop up. So again, in that first half, we're developing mastery in various realms. We're figuring out how things work so we can navigate life. And what we learn in the first half of life works for developing mastery, but then we face things in the second half of life and these strategies don't serve us so well. So we have to learn new approaches, new strategies, new, adopt new values. And often that means unlearning things that served us so well in the first half of life. And, and that's the challenge of this transition. Like learning from scratch is often simpler than learning new things that require us to unlearn old things uh, or to substantially loosen or adapt what has worked for us in the past. So first half of life, second half of life is something that it's uh, easy for many of us to identify with. And Richard Rohr provides a fleshing out of that model if you're drawn to it. Brian uh, McLaren has a book called Faith After Doubt in which he offers actually a, a review of several stage theories. And his, I think his favorite would be simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. So we begin in a state of simplicity in matters of faith. Over time, our simplicity is challenged by increasing complexity that we encounter in our life, new data and new experiences that strain our simpler earlier framework. This can lead to a period of perplexity. We feel like we've lost our bearings entirely. What's real? What's not? What's reliable? What's just the Kool-Aid I've been drinking? We can get stuck in any one of these uh, three early stages. But if we move from simplicity to complexity into perplexity, we can also enter calmer waters again, a period of harmony as beliefs and practices shift to make better sense of our experience of new data and new understandings. Uh, Walter Brueggemann has a, a very similar one to that. It's a, he's a progressive theologian, uh, has another stage theory that he draws from. Actually, he developed it from the book of Psalms. There's a little book on Psalms if you want to look it up. And his uh, three-stage theory is uh, orientation. It's a time of settled perspective followed by a time of disorientation. You know, aspects of the former perspective stop working for us, we get disoriented, and then we adjust and we enter a stage of new orientation and the cycle continues as we mature and develop and have more life experience. I, I like this one because it really is describing a learning process that applies in so many realms. I mean, scientific consensus moves from orientation to disorientation to new orientation. Anything that involves learning over a significant length of time, like parenting or golf, if you're a golfer, all, all of these things are um, kind of um, make sense under this rubric. So one last framing device addresses the question of why is there so much turbulence, so much sorting and sifting in the religious realm today. Like compared to 30 years ago or even 20 years ago, it just seems like, man, this is just happening all over the place. What is going on? So Phyllis Tickle 
in one of her uh, last books. I think it's the uh, the Great Emergence. And again, if you just Google that and that that title, you'll probably see interviews, articles, talks online. She she was one of the most significant lecturers of the of the 1990s. I think she lectured to more people than almost anyone else uh, in the country at that time. Um, she says that at least the Abrahamic faiths, that is Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, seem to go through a major rummage sale. I think we would call it a garage sale, uh, roughly every 500 years. And it's, it's very rough, of course. Um, 500 BCE, you have the destruction of Solomon's temple, the first temple, and the sack of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, leading to the forced deportation of the ancient Jewish elites to Babylon. This initiates a major shift in ancient Judaism from a temple-centered uh, worship to a more text-centered worship. During this period, the Hebrew scriptures uh, emerge and are collected from oral traditions and writings are identified that are regarded as, as special, what we call now scripture. 500 years later, so this is just before the destruction of the rebuilt temple, Herod's temple, the Babylonian exiles have returned to their homeland, but now everyone's under Roman occupation in Israel. There's a, there's a vast Jewish diaspora in the, in the region as well. Uh, you have the birth of the Jesus movement within ancient Judaism and what becomes later rabbinic Judaism, which is kind of the Judaism of today, Orthodox, conservative, reform, restorationist. 500 roughly in the, of the common area, 500 years later, roughly, we see the emergence of Christianity as very separate from Judaism. In fact, it's developed quite a bit of anti-Judaism. Uh, it's, it's run by uh, non-Jews and, and uh, Jewish followers of Jesus have been scapegoated and essentially excluded from uh, the Jesus movement. Uh, in the West, um, it's the alignment of Christianity with the Roman Empire. And at that time, uh, roughly 500, you have the birth of the monastic movement as a response to the corruption brought about by the blend of Christianity with empire and, you know, off to the desert and, and uh, radical expression of faith through the monastic movement. Roughly 1,100 tensions between Western Christianity and Eastern Orthodoxy result in a, in a second major split affecting Christendom second to, I think, the split with Judaism. Um, and suddenly you have the Roman Catholic Church and then you have the Eastern Orthodox Church, very similar in background, but increasingly diverging and having, uh, they, at one point, I think the Pope anathematized the patriarch of Eastern Orthodoxy and vice versa. And it was just a major split, um, what, 1140 of the Common Era. And then about 1500 um, in the West, you have the Protestant Reformation that separates from Roman Catholicism, another major period of transition. I think 2017 was the celebrated as the 50, 500th anniversary of Luther's reform, uh, the you know nailing of the 95 thesis on the, on the uh, church door there. And we find ourselves in another major transition that Phyllis Tickle dubbed the Great Emergence. So in other words, 
there's a great rummage sale that's underway in Christianity. People are going through the household of faith and deciding what's worth keeping, what needs to be gotten rid of and sold at the garage sale. We're searching through the basements and the attics of the household of faith. We're taking a whole nother look at the, at the story that runs through Christianity. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of soul searching going on. It's a lot of disruption. It's a time of great turbulence and ferment, as seems to be the case every 500 years or so. These, uh, the tensions that lead to these transitions build up and pow, it's happening. We're in one of those periods right now. So congratulations to us. We get to be part of, maybe if we want, reshaping a faith adapted to the demands of globalism and climate change and economic justice and equality and all the backlashes that these major global trends are generating. So a couple thoughts for just moving forward. Two simple suggestions. If you find yourself in a period of disorientation, find ways to externalize your internal dialogue. So usually this kind of begins kind of privately. We're just mulling over things. We're distressed. We're bothered by certain things. We don't, we're in a setting where, and if we share our concerns, it might be interpreted in ways that we're not comfortable with. It doesn't, we don't have like conversation partners for it. Uh, so it can be really helpful to externalize your internal dialogue. If you're a journaler, start writing your thoughts down having an email exchange with a, a trusted person over these matters can function in a similar way to journaling externalize your internal dialogue I, I would hope that the material of the of these sessions would provide some vocabulary for your externalizing your internal dialogue if you can find an empathetic non-judgmental person to talk to that really helps so one of the things I did when we conceived of this class, I act, uh, asked a group of people to serve as uh, just to make themselves available for this, to get an email, have some email exchange with participants, have a, have a phone chat, have a, have a Zoom uh, discussion. So I've asked, and maybe if you can wave if you're on the screen there, uh, Susan King, uh, Susan Brokaw, who's uh, with us today, both Susans are trained as spiritual directors, meaning they're trained to engage in careful listening to people going through issues that involve their, their faith and uh, be a good, a good listener, ask great questions. Steve Gray, I've asked to help out in this way. Uh, Steve does announcements sometimes. You may recognize him there. Uh, David Weil, professor at the University of Indiana, one of our translocal leaders. Caroline Kittle and Diane Sonda, both of whom you know, uh, all of them are available if you'd like to uh, connect with them uh, through email or whatever, whatever means. I'll probably have each of those people either moderate a session or give one of the, one of the opening uh, sharings just so you get a, a feel for who they are. So if you, if you say, oh, that, Susan King, that seems like an interesting person to talk to, or David Wild, you can, uh, email them. We should put those emails in the, in the chat, by the way. So what, what I don't have, Oh, people could individually put their email in the chat, or if you want to just email me or Ken, I can send you the email 
as yeah. well. That, that works great. And then finally, um, besides externalizing your internal dialogue, um, actually experiment, experimenting with a new to you spiritual practice can be very helpful. It's easy at first to think of this as like a primarily an intellectual process or uh, analyze your way out of it process, but it's much deeper than that. And so sometimes just um, starting a new spiritual practice can give you some uh, space. I went through a very significant reorientation from being a pastor in evangelicalism to running afoul of evangelicalism and into our new space at Blue Ocean. You know, that, that probably was really going from like, I'd say 2004 to 2014. So that's a 10 year process. And when people ask me like, what was the main thing that got you rethinking your approach to LGBTQ? It was actually changing my praying. So I went from like normal, charismatic, evangelical, devotional practices. They just weren't working for me. My father died. It was in a kind of a mild depression kind of state in response to that. And so I just started to practice silence and meditative prayer and contemplative prayer. And I uh, started practicing the divine hours, prayer at intervals through the day. And that was like the most significant factor in my changing my mind on LGBT matters and eventually moving me out of the even, uh, evangelical space. So experimenting with a new to you spiritual practice can be very helpful. The engaging in nature in a, in a more spiritual way or whatever it is that works for you. Okay, that's enough uh, of talking on my part. Caroline, do you want to? Go ahead and moderate our rest of our time, and I'll try to make sure that we end right at right by one, if not sooner.